it's true Jeff and I were in school together uh, you know I was two and he was uh, 21 at the time <laughs> now he was a senior when I came in as a freshman so we did enjoy uh, some time there and a uh, little bit of ministry I grew up in Buchanan but I have some roots in South Bend on my mom's side uh, my mom's first home that she grew up in when she was a little girl probably up until school age was over on Main and Tasher Street, and still house is still there. And then they moved from there over to Victoria Street uh, near Dale Avenue, and she lived there until probably early high school when uh, her dad, my grandpa, got a job as a city manager of Niles. And so they moved up to Niles, and that's where she finished. But some roots back here. Uh, my my uh, great aunt and uncle lived on Longfellow Avenue for about 60 years. And so uh, South Bend's always been uh, kind of in, in my orbit, even though I never lived here. My wife and I have always been northerners, living up across the border in Michigan. Um, when I was with uh, Jeff, I, I was in Lansing. That's where our school was. And I stayed there in some other ministries after I graduated for a few years and then received a call to come and help a church up in Marquette in the middle of the Upper Peninsula. Um, we raised our family there and uh, stayed there for 24 years in that ministry altogether. And actually today is the 10th uh, anniversary. The, 10 years ago today, I preached my last sermon at Lake Superior Christian Church in Marquette. So I've been back here in this area since then. Marquette's a different place. Um, we first realized this when we uh, flew up there. The, the people who recruited us to that ministry were smart in that they, uh, they flew us up to visit for the first time. Again, we were living in Lansing, but our family was still in Buchanan. So we drove down to Buchanan. I think our oldest daughter was just turned two, and we dropped her off. Um, and she stayed at Grandma's while our new baby, Cassie, was three months old, and we all flew up. But as we uh, left our car at the South Bend Airport to fly up to Marquette, we thought, you know, it was, it was uh, early May, and we thought, you know what, we're not dragging our coats around for a week while we're up there. We're gonna leave. So we threw them in the trunk, and uh, you guys have already guessed what happened when we got there. But in spite of the piles of snow this big that we found when we got there in May, uh, we ended up going there anyway. I remember the, the preacher and his wife picked us up at the airport, and we were driving through the main drag of town, and, and uh, she got all excited as we came up to this one intersection. She says, look, we have a McDonald's. <laughs> so that was the highlight uh, <clears throat> when we got there. But, uh, you know, you know you're getting close to Marquette when you see the sign that says, Road Ends 10 Miles, Marquette 20. So that's kind of where it is. And the people of the Upper Peninsula are different as well. They're, they're unusual people. Upers, they call themselves. And uh, anybody who doesn't live in the UP lives below the bridge. That's the Mackinac Bridge. And, of course, people who live the, below the bridge are what? Trolls. <laughs> yes, trolls. So that's how they look at it. But uh, there are some outstanding people in the UP. Uh, in fact, there's some people who are the stuff of legend up there. Two legendary people in the UP. Some of you may have even heard of these guys, Ano and Toivo. Anybody heard of Ano and Toivo? All right, let me tell you. I'll just give you one example of the, the legendary stuff of these guys. 
Uh, Eno and Toyjo, Toivo are uh, lumberjacks. Uh, they, they spent a lot of time in the woods. They were very skilled at their trade, but their friends started telling them, you know, you guys got to come up to the times. You got to get high tech now. And they finally talked them into going out and buying a chainsaw. So Eno and Toivo broke down. They bought the chainsaw. They went into the woods and they started working with their chainsaw. And after the first day, they were a little disappointed because they really didn't make as much wood as they were used to making every day with their old cross cut. And so they thought, I don't know, we'll, we'll try it again tomorrow. And so the next day they got out and they worked as hard as they could all day long. They still didn't produce as much wood as they usually would. So they thought, you know, maybe this equipment is defective. So they went to, back to the uh, hardware store where they bought the chainsaw and they told the retailer, said, hey, something's wrong with this saw here. We can't make enough wood with this thing. Uh, we don't know what's the matter with it, but it, it ain't right. And so the, the uh, retailer takes and said, well, okay, well, let me take a look at it. So he looks it over for a minute. He uh, sets the choke and primes it, pulls the cord, starts right up. Anu and Toivo jump back. What's that noise? <laughs> so that's, uh, that's Anu and Toivo, famous in the UP, legendary guys. But what we found there as well was not only the people, our unusual people, and, and the, the, the country is rugged and beautiful, but the climate spiritually was very dark, very dark. Uh, the area was settled largely by northern Europeans who came over to work as either lumbermen or work in the mines, and uh, a lot of them were uh, alcoholics high, high percentage of alcoholism in the UP, and uh, the climate was dark, and, and with, with alcoholism comes a lot of other things that are very negative for the person experiencing alcoholism and for everybody around them. And we found that less than 10% of the population of Marquette County attended any church on an average weekend. All the churches put together, every stripe, every brand, every denomination, put them all together, you got 10% or less in church. It was a spiritually dark place. When we moved back to Michiana, we found the climate, surprisingly to us, to feel similar. There's a lot of spiritual darkness here. There's a lot of lost people. There's a lot of people under um, the oppression that comes with sin and all of the effects of that. And I know when we come to our churches on Sunday and we see all of our friends, it feels like lots of people go to church. But if you drive home and you go through your neighborhood and you notice how many other people are getting home from church, not many. And I don't know the demographics, maybe some of you guys have done some studies here, but I'll bet you, you'd be surprised at how few of your neighbors are going to any church anywhere on the average weekend. But what we found was one candle in the darkest place makes all the difference. And it was exciting to see people come to Christ. We, uh, we targeted that 54,000 unchurched people. We went after them hard, and we got to uh, about 1% of them, <laughs> but there's a lot more work to do, and there's work to do here as well. 
A preacher friend of mine one time disguised himself as a homeless person on a Sunday morning, and uh, nobody knew about this, not even the elders. And he went to the, to the church building and got there before people started coming in, and he positioned himself along the wall, kind of close to where the main entrance was, and he just lay down there against the wall like he was asleep. And he had old clothes on, old dirty coat, and a, and a dirty old hat, and he had a fake beard on and some old broken sunglasses on, and he just laid there while people walked in. And after uh, most of the people were inside, the service had started, he, he walked into and, and uh, sat down in, in kind of a back corner, and no one greeted him, and nobody said hello to him, nobody sat by him. Well, it got time to uh, have the sermon, and the elders were starting to get nervous because nobody had seen my friend Mike, who's the preacher, Nobody had seen him that morning, and they kind of figured maybe he was talking to someone in his office or somewhere. They figured he'd show up when it was time. Well, he didn't. And so you can imagine if, if Jeff introduced me a few minutes ago, and I didn't stand up, and Jeff didn't see me out there, and was looking around, you can imagine it would get a little bit awkward for a few minutes. Well, that's kind of what happened until finally he stood up in the back in his homeless costume and started making his way up the aisle. And then it got really tense because nobody knew who he was. Nobody. And he walked all the way to the front. And people are starting to stare at him like, who is this guy and what's going on here and where's Mike? And he, and he walked right into the podium. And then he started speaking. And he started quoting. He had memorized James chapter 2 and he began to quote James chapter 2. And as he did, one piece at a time, he started taking off his disguise, and this is the scripture that he read. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, stand over there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to everyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God. Good. But even the demons believe and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The character of Jesus is first of all loving. Loving our neighbor is like loving God, he said. How do we do that? The Bible tells us in James chapter 2, first of all, don't show favoritism. Love each neighbor. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism to the rich, or for that matter, don't show it to the pretty or the popular, or the powerful. You know, our culture is infatuated with celebrities, actors, models, athletes. Some of these people are good examples of human beings, and many are not. Well, since I was a little kid, even growing up here in in southwest Michigan, uh, my favorite football team was always the Packers, probably because in that era they were, uh, you know, the strongest team, and the quarterback, though, is who caught my attention. Quarterback at that time was a guy named Bart Starr. And Bart Starr was not only an excellent quarterback, he was an excellent man. He was a, a role model. He was a Christian, and he lived the Christian life by his actions. Um, years ago, my daughter bought me a jersey of another Packer quarterback, some guy named Favre or something like that. Um, <laughs> And the next season after she bought me the jersey, uh, Brett Favre retired, supposedly, but then he ended up playing for the Jets. Then he ended up playing for the Vikings. I don't know how bad it could get, but uh, he did that. And then he was investigated by the league for immoral conduct. I haven't worn that jersey in a long, long time. Many of our politicians... And even some Christian singers and preachers act like celebrity wannabes instead of public servants and God's servants. 
We cannot afford the luxury of celebrity infatuation. Favoritism. Thinking of people more highly than we should. James asks, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who slander the noble name of him to whom you belong? The fact is that most of those people wouldn't give you the time of day if, if you met them on the sidewalk. We need to acknowledge that Jesus didn't shun the rich, but neither did he favor them over others. He instead challenged wealthy people to use their assets for the good of others and for the good of God's kingdom. Not all of them, but most of those who Jesus chose for his apostles were average working guys, blue-collar types, and some were social outcasts, and uh, there was even a tax collector among them. I'm not sure what kind of church you'd have if you allowed a tax collector to be among you. An old movie called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was the story of racial prejudice and of loving acceptance of those different from us racially. Not bad, just different. Well, guess who's coming to church? As we serve the Lord effectively by loving our neighbors, there will be people different from us who come, who come to Christ, who are, are of all different backgrounds, backgrounds uh, different from us racially, socially, economically. During one of our uh, elders' retreats in Marquette, as we discussed what the church was going to look like two, three, five years down the road as we continued to grow and reach more people, one of the elders thought for a second and he had a one-word answer, messy. And we all kind of chuckled for a minute and then we looked at each other and we nodded because we knew exactly what he meant and we knew he was exactly right. Because when people live in darkness, their lives get messy. And in order to reach the people who live around us who need Christ, you've got to reach into that darkness and lead them into the light. But they're still messy when they come into the light. In fact, the light tends to expose the messiness even more. But that's exactly what is supposed to be happening. And I just wonder, is living stones willing to be, committed to being a messy church? It has to be to fulfill God's purpose. Satan's influence is very powerful in this world, and it's a destructive influence. He hates you and me and everybody else, and he messes up lives. And when people have lived their whole life under that influence, it's a mess, and they need help. They need Christ. But when they first come in, come out of that darkness and into the light, they're not like they wish they were. They're not like we wish they were. They are like they are. And we've got to love them as they are and help them to grow and to become more of what they want to be 
one day at a time. Barry McMurtry is an Australian uh, who came to the U.S. and preached for many years at a church in Los Angeles area. It's called Crossroads Christian Church, and, and they call that church uh, the church anyone can come to. They said, if you're older, younger, single, married, brown, white, struggling, broke, ex-con, happy, committed, or unsure of your faith, you're welcome to come. Everybody's welcome. At the same time, coming is an open privilege, but they said belonging is a commitment. It's a commitment. I think the terminology around here is all in, right? All in. It's a commitment. It's a commitment to grow in Christ. It's a, not a commitment to pretending like I have it all together, but it's a commitment to grow in that direction, and it is a commitment to love others as Christ loved me. David Augsburger wrote about a tramp who was looking for a handout one day. He was, he was really in bad shape. He was hungry almost to the point of fainting. But this, this scene takes place in, in a picturesque old English village. And the tramp is walking down the street of this village, and he, and he stops by in front of a pub that bore the, the classic sign, Inn of St. George and the Dragon. And he went around back, and he knocked on the kitchen door, and a, a, a woman opened the door, and he said, Please, ma'am, could you spare me a bite to eat? A bite to eat! She just growled at the man, for a sorry, no-good bum, a foul-smelling beggar? No! And she slammed the door in his face. Well, he looked down and sadly, you know, made his way down the lane, but then he stopped after a few steps and he looked back at that sign, St. George and the Dragon. And he went back and he knocked again on the kitchen door and the same woman came and answered it, Now what do you want? And he said, Well, ma'am, if... St. George is in. May I speak with him this time? <laughs> to love our neighbors, we need to avoid the sin of favoritism. It just won't work. Secondly, we need to focus on the positive. We need to love our neighbor. Galatians 5.14 says the entire law is summed up in a single command Love your neighbor as yourself. That is a big sentence. The entire law is summed up in that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Have you ever put anything ahead of God as a priority in your life? I mean, if you're honest, I have. Have you ever misused God's name? I have. Have you ever failed to gather with God's people for, for worship when really you, you could have been there with them? I have. Have you ever failed to honor either of your parents? I have. Have you ever hated anyone? I have. Have you ever lusted? I have. Have you ever wished you had something instead of your neighbor having that thing? I have. But, you know, basically, I'm a good person. It's just that I've broken all the commandments. But, you know, if you knew me, you'd really love me. You know, it's, it's fascinating how we can excuse and we can rationalize 
and we can lie to ourselves about our moral status. But what if we really did keep the commandments? What if we really kept them, all of them, except that one? We only broke one of them, but all the rest we kept them. We only broke that one because, you know, that one neighbor, man, we just couldn't love that guy. He was just unlovable. James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Jesus said the whole law as it pertains to our relationship with others is summarized in this one command. And we tend to focus, unfortunately, on the prohibitive commandments. We focus on the don'ts or thou shalt nots and largely end up ignoring the do's, the positive commands, such as love. And when we focus on the don'ts, we miss the point. Loving without favoritism, focusing on the long-term best for the other person is not easy to do, but it is possible. We can commit ourselves to it. And here's an example of what that might look like in action. An example from a famous person, but a part of his life that you may be totally unfamiliar with. This is a letter that Abraham Lincoln wrote. And he wrote the letter to his brother, uh, who had written to him requesting a loan of money. And this, this is Abraham Lincoln's reply to his brother. Dear Johnston, your request for $80 I do not think it best to comply with now. At the various times when I have helped you a little, you've said to me, we can get along very well now, but in a very short time I find you in the same difficulty again. Now this can only happen by some defect in your conduct. What I, that defect is, I think I know. You're not lazy, but still you're an idler. I, don't, I doubt whether since I saw you, you have done a good whole day's work in any one day. You do not very much dislike to work, and still you do not work much, merely because it does not seem to you that you could get much for it. The habit of uselessly wasting time is the whole difficulty and is vastly important to you and still more so to your children that you should break this habit. It's more important to them because they have longer to live and can keep out of an idle habit before they are in it, easier they can, than they can get out of it after they are in it. You are now in need of some ready money. And what I propose is that you shall go to work. Tooth and nail for somebody who will give you money for it. Let father and the boys take charge of things at home. Prepare for a crop, make the crop, and you go to work for the best money, wages, or in discharge of any debt that you owe that you can get. And to secure for you a fair reward for your labor, I now promise you that for every dollar you will, between this and the first of next May, get for your own labor, either in money or in your own indebtedness, 
I will then give you one other dollar. By this, if you hire yourself at $10 a month from me, you'll get 10 more, making $20 a month for your work. In this, I do not mean you shall go off to St. Louis or to the lead mines or the gold mines or California, but I mean for you to go at it for the best wages you can get close to home in Coles County. Now, if you will do this, you will soon be out of debt. And what's better, you will have a habit that will keep you from getting in debt again. But if I should now clear you out, next year you'll be in just as deep as ever. You say that you would almost give your place in heaven for 70 or $80. Then you value your place in heaven very cheaply. For I am sure that with the offer I make you, you can get the 70 or $80 for four or five months' work. You say, if I furnish you the money, you will deed me the land. And if you don't pay the money back, you will deliver possession. Nonsense. If you can't now live with the land, how will you then live without it? You have always been kind to me, and I do not now mean to be unkind to you. On the contrary, if you will but follow my advice, you will find it worth more than eight times $80 to you. Affectionately, your brother, A. Lincoln. That couldn't have been an easy letter to write. I don't have the answer to the question, well, what did Johnson do? We don't know. But President Lincoln looked at the long-term effect, not only to his brother, but to his brother's whole family. What was this going to do for generations to come? Would it change a habit? Would it change a lifestyle, a character, not only for the father, but for all those children for who knows how many generations? That is thinking of the long-term good of the other person, and that's what love looks like in action. I'm sure President Lincoln could have afforded to send him $80. But really, that would have been the wrong thing to do. And that would have been easier than what he arranged here. Number three, keep your faith alive. Love your neighbor. Faith without deeds is dead. Faith with deeds is alive. In John chapter 6, we read this story. Jesus looked up and saw a crowd coming toward him, and he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not be enough to buy bread for each one to have a bite. And another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down in groups of about 50 each. And there was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. 
let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. How far will they go? We live in a land of material wealth and of government programs for the poor. However, there are still some among us with legitimate physical needs. Some fall between the cracks. They have no money. They don't understand how to work the system to get what they need, even though it's available to them. Some are honestly looking for work, but they haven't gotten any yet. You can't meet this need any more than that boy with his one lunch could feed 5,000 men plus all the women and children in that crowd. You can't do it. But if you do what you can, Jesus can use what you can do to accomplish things that you would never dream could be done. Not in your wildest dreams. Do you think that boy thought his lunch was going to feed thousands of people? I don't think he thought that at all. I don't think he thought much about it except for this was the teacher. And the teacher was needing something and he had it so he gave what he had. That's all he thought. I'll, I'll give what I have. That's all. The faith of a child. We are to have childlike faith, aren't we? Don't sit there and try to calculate what your little 10-minute conversation with somebody is going to accomplish in their life. Don't try to calculate it out and then decide, well, that's not worth it. Just say to yourself, you know what? God's brought this person across my path and maybe, maybe I can sow a seed here in 10 minutes. I don't know. And have the conversation. Pray for them as you walk away. Pray for them as you think of them later. And see what Jesus will do with that seed that you planted. Now, seeds are small. The seed doesn't look much like a tree. <laughs> but that's what it becomes when it's planted. You know what a seed becomes when it's never planted? Nothing. Beyond the great need around us physically, there's an even greater need. It's a spiritual need. I spoke with it at the beginning of this message. We're in a dark culture today. And it's not just South Bend. I mean, our, our country is spiritually getting darker and darker. And that means when we truly hold the light up, it's going to shine brighter and brighter, right? It's not a time to give up or become discouraged. It's a time to hold that light up. That's the time. That spiritual need, if you will... If you could feed and house someone for their entire lifetime and from birth to death, but you did not help with their spiritual need, in the end, it was a Band-Aid. And no more can we meet the spiritual need of someone than we could meet the physical need of everyone around us that we know has a need. But if we give what we can, Jesus will use it. 
And here's the end of the story. It's a sneak preview. This is the trailer for the end of the story. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate all the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left and the King will say to those on His right, Come! Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in or, or, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I never like hearing a message and getting convicted. And I can't read these passages of Scripture without being convicted myself. I never like hearing that without any action steps to do something about that conviction. And we need that. The goal is not to feel guilty. That accomplishes nothing. The goal is to be motivated and to have a vision for what can change. And that's what I want to share with just the, the next one minute and we're done. What can you do? First, start with prayer. You might say, oh yeah, now we're, now we're back to believing and doing nothing about it. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, yes, you need to pray. It's faith and actions working together, right? So start with prayer. Pray for God's forgiveness for the times when you have not loved your neighbor or the times when you have shown favoritism. Pray for God's forgiveness. We've all done it. We're all guilty. God wants to forgive you. Pray. Pray that he will then fill you with his love for people. You know, I, I, I love in the Charlie Brown cartoons where the, the character says, you know, I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. I think a lot of us relate to that. And you know what? That's why we need God's love, because we don't have enough. God's love is like the 12 baskets full that were so much, they were extra leftovers. 
our love is like the five loaves and two fish. You know, it's not very much. We need God's love, don't we, to be able to love those that come across our path for all kinds of people, all colors, all ages, all races, abilities, disabilities, needs, assets, hurts, strengths, or weaknesses. We need his love for them because our love is not enough. So start with prayer. Ask the Lord to bring someone specific to your mind or across your path as you commit yourself to, to loving like he does. Make yourself a short list of people as you begin to think of these people and put that short list maybe on the back of a business card or an index card. Stick it on your mirror where you see it every morning. Stick it on your dashboard. Put it in your purse. Put it in your pocket and refer to it often and pray by name for those three or five people that you want God to impact with his love through you and pray for them. Second, next time you find out you know of a, little, of a legitimate need, do something small. Often we don't do anything because we see the size of the need and we realize we can't do it. And so we do what? Nothing. And I'm saying stop that pattern. Do something small and trust God to use it to the extent that it needs to be used. Do something small. What a great opportunity in this next month to bless the children and families of the community with the back-to-school program that you have here. Wow! I can buy a box of pencils, you know? Doesn't seem like much. Do something small. I can volunteer for an hour, two hours that day. I can do that. Do something. Do something small and watch God work because that's what he does. Never underestimate what God can do with something given for his purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for using the small things in unbelievable ways. And Lord, this is a very small sermon today. Very small. Seems like nothing. But Lord, it contains your word. And your word is powerful. Lord, your word can make a difference in the hearts and the actions and the futures of those who take it to heart. Please take the word, Lord, and sow it deep into those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that through them, Lord, your light will go out into this community and touch lives beyond our wildest dreams. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.